Welcome to On the Way with Tony Crisp. Each weekday, Dr. Crisp will be discussing biblical passages, people, places, and prophecies. Tune in daily to start your day right and deepen your understanding of how to better walk the way and enjoy the journey. Here's your host, Dr. Tony Crisp. Welcome to On the Way. This is Tony Crisp, and this is the 365 Bible Reading Plan. Today is September the 30th, and our chapter for today is Romans chapter 12. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable, your logical service. Litruo. Amazing. That's the word where we get our word liturgy. That is, this is an act of worship. It's a liturgy. It's a liturgical thing. It is service, yes, but it is worship. You say, well, what is the meaning of the word? Is it worship or service? The answer is yes, because a service act toward God is worship. Worship must involve service. So here we are at Romans chapter 12, and we come to the third part of the outline. In the first eight chapters, God deals with all that God has done for us in Christ. In chapters 9, 10, and 11, he talks about the relationship between Israel and the church, between grace and law, between the wild olive tree and the true olive tree, the stump from which Christianity rose out of and was grafted into. But now he comes to the therefore. I beseech you, therefore. He's drawing a conclusion. That is, there is a conclusion to all of the doctrinal aspects of the faith. God doesn't just tell us something. God doesn't just show us something so we can be puffed up with knowledge. God teaches us about who he is and what he's done for us so it'll change our lives so that it will bring us to the conclusion of obedience. You see, God wants us to obey him. God doesn't give us instructions so we can think about it. God commands us to do something which speaks to our will, not to our emotion. If a father or a mother tells a child to do something, I need you to do this, you are to do this, he's not asking them how they feel about it. She's not asking her child, how do you feel about this? She's giving a command. He's giving a command. And this is what God does. God says, do this. Why? Because he knows best. He's not asking us how we feel or what is our view of something or whether we get a vote on this or not. No, this is living in obedience to someone who is greater than we are, who knows more than we do, who's wiser than we are. As high as the heaven is above the earth, so high is God above us. He is transcendent. We are his servants. We are his slaves. We are his bond slaves. So he says, Paul comes to the conclusion, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, all that he's talked about in the first 11 chapters, it's all about God's grace. It's all about God doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. On that basis, he said, I want you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, set apart. This is acceptable to God, which is your logical, your reasonable worship and service. We are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, what's this all about, this term of sacrifice? I thought this was all in the Old Testament. 
Well, in the Old Testament, there are sacrifices. Of course there are. When you turn to the book of Leviticus, you will see exactly what I'm talking about. In Leviticus chapter 1, God starts immediately, not in chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, but in chapter 1, he immediately starts talking about sacrifice, free will sacrifices, free will offerings, not something that the Jews had to do in order to be saved. No, this was a free will offering. This is what Leviticus chapter 1 says. Now the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tabernacle of meeting, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say unto them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, notice the word, the personal name for God, to Yah, you shall bring your offering of the livestock, of the herd, of the flock. If his offering is a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own free will at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. And it'll be an atonement for him. It'll be a covering for him. It won't take away his sins. No, he'll have to bring it again. No, this is the first. It's the whole burnt offering. You see, every offering that was brought to God, and there's five offerings in the Old Testament. There's five offerings in Torah. There are five primary offerings. They are the burnt offering in chapter 1. That's the whole burnt offering. I'll come back to that. The grain offering in chapter 2, that's the Thanksgiving offering. The peace offering in chapter 3, that's the fellowship, the shalim. This is the place of fellowship where men and God meet. The sin offering where there was no restitution possible or necessary. And then the trespass offering in chapter 5, which had to do with reparation or the bringing of restitution. So in 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, you have the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, the trespass offering. In the first five chapters, there were five offerings, and they had to do with placing everything on the altar. That was the first one. That's where it all begins is when you bring to God an offering. This is what they had to do. They had to bring an offering to God that was acceptable. It was one that was without blemish. It was without spot. It was the best that they had to offer. You see, normally when you brought an offering of any kind to the priest to offer, it was apportioned. That is, the first portion went to God. The second portion went to the priest. This is how they lived. They had no inheritance. They had no land except the cities, the environs around in the outskirts of the city. And so this is what they had. So God got the best in the first portion of the offering. The priest got the second portion. And then the third portion was for the one who brought the offering that he could take it home or he could there wherever he's making the offering. He could have a feast and celebrate a sacred time of honoring God with his family and his relatives. This happened with every offering except one, and that's the whole burnt offering where the entire sacrifice, the entire ram, lamb, bull, or goat was put on the offering. It was to be a sweet-smelling aroma to God. It was to be consumed entirely. That was the first starting point. And then you had this Thanksgiving offering called a grain offering, then the fellowship offering, and then the sin offering, then the uh, trespass offering. So there were five offerings. In the Old Testament, there were five sacrifices, but they were not all bloody. But do you understand that in the New Testament, there's a sacrificial system? That's right. How many offerings are there in the 
Old Testament, five. How many are in the New Testament? Five. We have the one right before us in our text, Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, because of all that God has done for you, not in order to gain God's favor, but because you have gained God's favor through grace, you are to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. The word in Greek is thusia, which is the word that's used for a whole burnt offering and other offerings. But in the Latin, it's the word holocaustum, a burning, a consuming. Your life is to be consumed by the fires from God's altar. Paul said this is the starting point, that you present everything you are, lay it upon the altar, body, soul, and spirit, put it upon the altar and say, God, I belong to you and I'm giving you everything that I am. This is where it all begins. Who was he talking to? He was talking to believers. He was talking to those who were born again in Rome. He was talking to those who were set apart. But there comes a time in every believer's life when he says, I've got it now. I understand. Because a person who's saved, they have to grow. They have to come to the point in their life, not where they're saved again, no, but where there is an understanding that God really, really, not just in theory, but must have our free will offering of everything we are to God. And by the way, this is the tense in the Greek that speaks of the entire as a whole. There is a point in time when a person realizes my whole life, not just my first day of the week or midweek or part of my life or the social part of my life or the religious part of my life, but my life is a total sacrifice unto God. Paul said, for me to live is Christ. To die is gain, yes, but for me to live is Christ. This is why I've said over and over again, our lives need to be a holocaust. It needs to be a whole burnt offering. None for us. Why? We don't deserve anything. We don't deserve anything except hell and separation. But because of what God's done, we owe him our life. This is our logical, our reasonable worship and service is to say, because you saved me, I'm giving everything to you. You own me. Everything. It's all yours. This is our reasonable service. And that calls for obedience. That's why he turns around in the next verse and says, do not any longer be conformed, be pressed into the world's mold and the world's thinking and the world's lifestyle, but be metamorphosized, be transformed. Let the transformation take place by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You see, after we're saved, that doesn't mean that we are not going to wrestle with sin, but the more we allow God to control our lives and the more we lay ourselves upon his altar, that's when we say, God, start transforming my mind. I'm no longer going to be molded into the world's thinking. Now, Paul was talking to the Roman Christians, and he said, stop being molded by the world. Stop being pressed into the world. Stop being conformed to this world. You know what that implies? They were allowing that to happen. They were thinking like the world. How many believers are in church every Sunday morning and they have taken the world's thinking hook, line, and sinker? They are believing the way the world believes about creation, about how we treat one another, about the ethics of the world about the lifestyle of the world, about the morality of the world. We have taken it in, and Paul says, stop that. There's a point in time where you must stop it. When does that happen? When you put yourself up on the altar and say, God, this is it. 
I'm going to stop being conformed to the world's thinking. I'm going to be transformed as your word renews my mind, metamorphosizes me, just like that old worm that balls itself up, a cocoon is formed around it like a grave, and then it is transformed after a period of time into a beautiful butterfly that flies away. God, transform us into the beautiful butterflies from the worms that we've been. This is what Paul says. And so the first sacrifice in the New Testament, how many are there? Five. How many in the Old Testament? Five. What was the first one? A total consummation offering, a total consumption of the sacrifice. This is what God's wanting. He wants to consume you. He wants to consume me. But once we do that, Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 15 and 16 says this, therefore, let us continually offer to God the sacrifice of praise, thanksgiving, giving thanks unto God, the fruit of our lips, that is thanksgiving. Do not forget to do good and to share for with such sacrifices, such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Same word. So the first sacrifice in the New Testament is to put yourself on the altar and say, God, I want you to consume me. I want you to consume my mind, my thoughts, everything I do. I want to live my life in obedience to you. What's the second sacrifice? Praise. We need to learn how to praise God. Praise is always active. It's always demonstrative. It's always assertive. It is never passive. It is never quiet. I'm talking about praise. I'm not talking about all the other aspects of worship, prayer and preaching and service. I'm not talking about all. I'm talking about praise. Praise is never inactive. It is never non-assertive and passive. It is always demonstrative. It's not sitting quietly in the corner. That's not praise. That's other aspects of worship, but not praise. Praise is always vocal. Praise is always demonstrative, the raising of the hands, the clapping. There's sound. There's an audible aspect to it, a vocal aspect to it, a visual aspect to it. It has to be practiced. How do you practice? Why do you practice? You practice in order to get better at it. David wrote out his prayers. Why? So he could read them. So he could be reminded. We think if something's not spontaneous, it's not of God. That is very little having to do with praise. Praise is primarily something that's practiced over and over again. Why? Listen to me. Because these sacrifices are commands by God. They deal with the will, a person's choice, a person's volition. Praise is a command. We are commanded to praise God. You say, wait just a minute, that's Old Testament. Old Testament's still Bible. Just because Jesus came and lived and died and rose again doesn't mean that he has annulled all that is said in the Bible, in the Tanakh. The Bible says, let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And he tells us how to do it. It's a command. It's an imperative. And these are things that we have just simply overlooked. Giving of thanks, that's a command. We need to cultivate a grateful heart. God wants us not griping, but giving thanks. God wants us to look for that which to give thanks for, not that which we can nitpick to death. Do not forget to do good. You see, doing good things is an act of worship. We need to do good things, not because we want to be saved, but because we are saved. Whatever happened to doing good works? Whatever happened to being good? Whatever happened to being obedient? Whatever happened to being kind? You say, well, man, you're fired up about that. Of course I am. These are the words of God. 
and to share. That means to distribute, to have fellowship. That means that we give. Giving is an act of worship. It's like a sacrifice, a sweet-smelling aroma. Read Philippians 4 and see what Paul says about the Philippians. So there's five sacrifices in the Old Testament. There's five sacrifices in the New Testament. The sacrifices in the Old Testament did not save. The sacrifices of the New Testament do not save. It is the blood of Jesus and his sacrifice alone that saves us. Everything else is a P.S. saying, I love you and thank you and I worship you. For On the Way, this is Tony Crisp. Thanks for listening to On the Way with Tony Crisp. Tune in every weekday for information on biblical passages, people, places, and prophecies. Fridays are for your questions. Email your questions to questions at TonyCrisp.org. Then just listen for your question to be answered on Friday's podcast. That's questions at TonyCrisp.org. Thanks for listening and have a blessed day on the way.